Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this event uh, hosted by the Center for International Policy Studies at the University of Ottawa. Uh, we're delighted that you can all join us. The occasion for this podcast uh, is an important one, and it is to uh, celebrate, but also discuss uh, a book that Patty Leonard, who's a professor at the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs, has just published on, on the theme of counterterrorism and uh, civil liberties protections. An important ongoing topic, of course, for, for everyone who lives in a, in a democratic setting. So we're, we're joined in this uh, virtual event uh, to talk about Patty's book. Uh, and we have a, a kind of excellent lineup of international experts uh, who know this subject extremely well. And, and it's lovely that we can connect with them globally. This is one of the the few advantages of COVID, it seems to me, that we've all been starting to be plugged in virtually to, to each other. And we, we have the possibility of having a, a larger audience for, for these kinds of conversations. So uh, we have uh, a, a guest joining us from Stockholm, and we have a guest joining us from London, uh, each of which have had, each countries have had their own experiences with COVID-19. And then there's myself in, in Ottawa, and I'm Wesley Wark, an adjunct professor currently at the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs. And, and of course, our star is Patty Leonard, who is uh, on sabbatical, uh, which was excellent timing <laughs> during COVID, uh, but is able to join us. So I'm going to turn uh, the discussion over for brief introductions, self-introductions, really, on the part of our, our three panelists. They can tell us a little bit about uh, who they are, the work they are doing, uh, their connections with Patty, their interest in, in Patty's project. And, and then we'll come back to Patty to, to open a conversation about some of the key themes in her book and, and why she, she decided to write this book. So over perhaps first to Zach Taylor. Hello, yes, uh, my name is Zach Taylor. Uh, I've just started at Stockholm University as an associate senior lecturer in philosophy. Uh, my research looks at uh, questions of how states can pursue security both ethically and effectively, uh, with a particular focus on uh, how new technologies are being used in this area. Uh, I wrote a book on counterterrorism, just like Patty, uh, which came out in 2018 called The Ethics of Counterterrorism. However, I really think Patty's book has, has kind of added on that and really uh, you know, gone in places I didn't go, particularly about what the importance of, of um, liberal and egalitarian principles are for counter-terrorist policy. So I look forward to discussing it more with Patty now. Jeff, over to you. Thanks so much. Uh, so I'm Jeff Howard. I'm an associate professor of political theory at University College London. Um, I met Patty Leonard many years ago uh, when I was an undergraduate at uh, Harvard College and she was teaching social studies there. Um, and I followed her work with keen interest since those days um, and have developed an interest in counterterrorism policy myself over the past few years. Uh, unlike uh, Zach and Patty, I have not written a book on counterterrorism and policy, uh, although I use Zach's terrific 2018 book, The Ethics of Counterterrorism, a lot in a graduate course that I teach at UCL on counterterrorism policy. And I will be swiftly adding Patty's book to the syllabus for that class the next time uh, I get to teach it. I'm personally interested in a range of debates in ethics and public policy that intersect with counterterrorism debates. 
So I've been working a lot lately on questions of freedom of speech, thinking about what the limits of the legal right to freedom of expression should be. And in particular, thinking about whether speech that advocates or glorifies terrorism should be protected by free speech. Um, and if not, whether we could expect or should expect social media companies to do anything about that kind of expression. Uh, I've also worked on a number of other topics that relate to counterterrorism policy, uh, including the ethics of policing and the role of sting operations in counterterrorism operations. Uh, and I've also done some work on ransoms policy and whether um, states should pay ransoms uh, to terror groups who kidnap their citizens. Um, so I'm tremendously uh, delighted to be here to discuss Patty's excellent book, which I have here in front of me. It's a great book and I encourage people to get a hold of it. Uh, and I look forward to the conversation. Thanks so much. So I'm going to turn to Patty uh, and give her center stage here for at least a minute before we all start to, to join in this conversation. And of course, with any, with any book, there's, um, there's lots of uh, blood, sweat and tears in its, in its composition, but there's always an interesting backstory. So I'm, I'm going to ask Patty just to, to tell us all, whoever's listening in to this podcast, about um, how she came to write this book, why she wanted to write it, uh, because as, as she indicated in her introduction, it wasn't necessarily kind of in her, in her orbit of, of thinking uh, as, uh, as a, uh, a professor and political philosopher and so on. So, so what was it that drew you to a book that would look at counterterrorism uh, policies and maybe tell us a little about some of the struggles you had with some of these issues? Um, thanks for the question. Thanks, everybody, for coming along and uh, playing along and having this conversation with me. And it, I mean, it's especially fun because uh, Wesley and Zach are so, you are both so central to the questions that I'm asking in your work. Uh, Wesley started me on this path and um, Zach's, Zach's book on, on how we think about the moral questions really, uh, really pressed me forward. And then I, I, mean, I had a couple of exchanges with Jeff about how to teach this. He's very generously shared the syllabus that he just referred to. Um, and some, and some of the, and the ways in which that course itself was structured had an impact on how I presented ideas in this book. So, so it's, it's nice to have a, have a chance to talk to all of you um, here. So here's the reason. I mean, here's the reason why I wrote the book, even though um, counterterrorism was not initially something that um, captured my attention. And the reason is, uh, really goes back to the questions that I have always been asking, which is how should we manage um, how should we manage diversity? How should we manage protecting trust among a diverse population in a democratic state? And I've been interested in that uh, since the beginning, since, uh, since my undergraduate degree, that has been the question that I've been asking. And then things passed, things, things moved forward. And one of the key questions started to be, started to start, people started to focus on questions of uh, counterterrorism and the ways in which they they can they can impact these relations, and so I joined up with a project that Wesley got going about ten years ago, and with a with a postdoc of mine whose name is Baljeet Nagra, and we we formulated a project which asked questions that I was not familiar with, but asked asked questions to um, minority Canadian citizens about their experience of counterterrorism, and I was um, uh, surprised at, to find that the overwhelming experience, at least in Canada, I'll, I'd be curious to know whether this is the same in the countries, in everybody else's countries of residence and origin, but in, in Canada, the, the experience of counterterrorism was, was felt ex as extremely costly, extremely burdensome by minority citizens. And because my, my, my worry is always about how can we ensure equal protection, uh, equal rights, 
equal respect for minority citizens in diverse communities, I became very concerned that maybe the pursuit of counterterrorism was actually uh, fundament fundamentally undermining our capacity to protect the equality of all of these citizens. And political philosophers have all kinds of you know, understandings of what equality means and how we might protect it. But uh, at least in the book, the general claim is whatever definition of equality you choose, uh, counterterrorisms have the have the effect of undermining that type of equality and certainly the felt experience of equality of minority citizens. So I wrote a book. It's very short, um, and it's in a series called Political Theory Today, which invites political theorists to uh, answer key questions that are in the public space. Uh, and this was my question. Um, and the I mean. How should they do it? I mean, how should they do it most effectively? I don't know. But what the point of the book is to say that morally speaking, normatively speaking, one of the key considerations has to be the way in which uh, the minority citizens who are impacted by counterterrorism policies, the, what, how we protect those people's equality in terms of the, the, the equal package of rights and in terms of equal respect, in terms of equal protection of interests, et cetera, whatever, whatever your favorite account of equality is, that needs to be central to the questions, to the way in which counterterrorism policy is pursued in a democratic state. Patty, that's terrific. Look, and I think that gives us a, a, a great segue to, to a conversation. And, and if we begin by focusing on this challenge that counterterrorism policies in democracies at least pose to diversity and, and rights, Maybe I could ask both Zach and, and Jeff to give me, uh, to give us their views on, on one of the sort of critical pieces of this, which is the question of speech offenses, as we often uh, describe them. Uh, and there are two elements of this, it seems to me. Um, one is laws around speech offenses. That is, how do we sanction legally speech offenses? And, and the other uh, that Zach has already mentioned, I think, is, is the question of how do we regulate speech offenses, particularly in an, in an age when giant uh, social media platforms and providers control a lot of the information space and may be reluctant to try and, and be regulators themselves of that information space. So, so the, this speech offense question is one that, that certainly has pressed in on, on Canada and on legislators and the, and the public conversation. And we, we're having an ongoing I think debate about the regulation of, of social media platforms that, that moves in all kinds of directions. Uh, neither of these things have been resolved. So, so perhaps we can start there just with um, Zach and Jeff's views on you know, how they understand speech offenses, what they think the best way to go in terms of both uh, legal sanctions and regulation around those might be. And, and Patty's feel, you know, feel free to, to leap in at any stage. This is meant to be a, a conversation. It'll be a Canadian conversation, so it'll be polite um, and, and probably um, too polite. But, but weigh in, uh, both Zach and, and Jeff, in that order, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. So I think Jeff has done more work uh, on this than, than I have. But um, maybe I, I could put out there a few questions where I'm thinking about this for a moment. Um, so in, in, in a number of countries, um, particularly in the UK, um, the glorification of terrorism has been brought up as a, a, a new, new form of um, speech, which the state seeks to regulate. And this, it seems different, differs from uh, incitement to violence. It's not quite incitement, um, but it's also seems to me conceptually different from hate speech. Um, and so the question is, you know, if this does somehow uh, cause terrorism or encourage terrorism in some way, um, should this be regulated just as many countries regulate incitement or hate speech as well. Um, I don't 
have the answer to that, but um, maybe Jeff has some ideas to solve it all and, and completely solve the problem. Absolutely. It's such an easy question, of course. Um, no, it's, a, it's an extraordinarily difficult question. And I certainly came to the question with a typical American style skepticism about speech restrictions in general. So in the United States of America, the First Amendment to the United States Constitution protects free speech. Uh, and courts have interpreted that right to freedom of expression to include speech that advocates violence, that expresses uh, contempt toward the government, that uh, advocates engaging in various forms of terrorism. And the Supreme Court has said that the only situation in which it is permissible for the state to crack down on that kind of terrorist advocacy uh, is a situation in which uh, speakers are intentionally advocating uh, criminal action and their advocacy is likely to inspire that action imminently, so right away. And the thing about that test, which the court articulated in a famous 1969 case called Brandenburg v. Ohio, is that it doesn't seem to apply to internet speech. So if I post a clip on YouTube telling people that I think terrorism is an awfully good idea and that I think the best version of our religion defends a duty to murder infidels, that's probably not gonna endanger anyone imminently. People are gonna mull it over, they're gonna think about it, maybe it's gonna increase gradually to the radicalization of particular individuals. And so in the United States, that kind of speech is, is left up, that kind of speech is, is legal. Um, contrast that as Zach did with laws that restrict um, inciting terrorism or glorifying terrorism of the sort we see in the United Kingdom. And over time, I must admit, I've come around to the, to the uh, non-American position. I've come to think that freedom of speech is actually just like a number of other rights we have, where it's limited by the moral obligations we have not to endanger or otherwise harm others. So, for example, just like the right to religious freedom doesn't give me the right to engage in ritual infant sacrifice, even if my religion commands me to engage in ritual infant sacrifice, so too, I think, our free speech right doesn't entitle us um, to endanger others, especially when that endangerment is intentional. Now that doesn't answer the regulatory question. It just tells us that this kind of speech falls outside the ambit of freedom of expression. Um, I think that even if it's true that people have an interest in expressing themselves, even if it's true that listeners, as John Stuart Mill would tell us, sometimes have an interest in hearing bad ideas because it's useful to sharpen their good ideas against them, I think you need to weigh those benefits against the duty we have not to endanger others. Um, and so that's why I'm, I'm very, in principle, comfortable with this kind of regulation. And the devil's in the details and thinking about what exactly should the regulations be and are they going to be effective? Patty, over to you, absolutely. Yeah, well, no, no, I was just going to press Jeff on that. Do you, do you are, are there, uh, are there regulations presently in operation that you think do a, a better job? Could you, could you, do you have any specific examples? I mean, in, in my book, I talk about the, the 2006 uh, regulation in the, in the UK, which is not something that I'm super duper familiar with, but uh, which seems to be open to all of the kinds of criticisms that you were talking about, that it's quite, or that you're implying that it's quite vague, it's quite, and it's quite difficult, or that Zach was talking about. It's quite, it's quite, I mean, it's not so clear what counts as incitement, whether it's a different thing than glorification, how we should define all these terms. Are, are you in favor of something like that, defining all of these terms and trying to identify them? Uh, did you think that the two, are you familiar with? And if so, do you think it's a good regulation, the 2006, or should we throw it out and start again? 
No, I'm, I'm generally in favor of the 2006 uh, regulation. I don't think it violates freedom of expression. I think that if you endanger people um, through the glorification of violent acts with the intention of inspiring them uh, to engage in those acts, uh, then I think that falls outside the scope of freedom of expression. But I actually think it's probably a mistake to rely on the criminal law as any kind of silver bullet in this area that we really do need to start thinking about the regulation of the social media companies. So even, even in the United States, even if I was able to persuade the Supreme Court to say that um, speech inciting or glorifying terrorism is constitutionally unprotected, um, the, uh, there's all sorts of legislation, um, in particular uh, Section 230 of, of the Communications Decency Act, which immunizes social media companies from any responsibility for illegal content posted by users with certain exceptions, for example, um, child sexual abuse material. Um, and so we then have to tackle the question, um, should social, medias be, so social media firms be saddled with an obligation to go after this speech? And there, I think we don't have an adequate model. Um, countries are just starting up their legislation in this area. The UK is considering empowering Ofcom, our telecommunications regulator, with the power to enforce what's being called a duty of care. And the idea here is that Ofcom would work with the social media companies and negotiate a plan for how to reduce this kind of content. And then the regulator would um, monitor the performance of those companies in sticking to the agreed plan. Um, and so I think that it's going to be really interesting to follow the progress of these kinds of new regulatory initiatives. Um, but I don't see anything in the world now that is adequately going after the kinds of terrorist content, um, both religious terrorism and it must be said again and again, right-wing white supremacist terrorism, um, the kind of terrorism that seems to be advocated by this most recent QAnon controversy um, that perhaps we might talk about. Uh, I still think we haven't found an adequate regulatory solution of how to get this stuff off the web. Patty, do you have a, a sort of view on, on how, to, how we approach um, so-called speech offenses? I mean, a, a kind of principled framework uh, that, that you think might work? despite the difficulties of, of trying to pin it down in, in legislation or regulation or, or trying to figure out how to deal with the big social media companies? So, so, I, so I, do, I, do, I, mean, I do have a view, which is um, I agree with Jeff's, the statement that Jeff just made, which is that regulation in this space is not a silver bullet. But uh, since, my, since my focus is on what is the experience of minority, uh, minority communities in the face of all of these regulations, then there's, a, there's another question which is really important, which is what is the symbolic value of adopting uh, laws which, re which regulate and reduce the total, uh, reduce, reduce um, certain types of speech acts, right? So, th so this is why I'm in favor of hate speech. It's the same reason why I'm in favor of uh, enhanced punishments for terrorists in various kinds of cases, because one of the things that they do, even if they don't actually enhance punishments, or even if they don't successfully reduce the total amount of speech that is out there uh, perpetrating violence, they do send a, a signal to a particular community, um, either either uh, in, in, a, in, the, in the far right example that Jeff, that I agree needs to be elevated in particular in the, in the, in the you know, given the, the sheer number of crimes that are perpetrated in the name of far right nationalism, but the, the, the targets of those are always minorities. They're, uh, they're, they're Muslim citizens or Middle Eastern appearing citizens. They're Jewish citizens. They're black citizens. And so you, they're, they're, and they're sexual minority citizens. So you have all of these citizens who, who will benefit 
uh, just from the knowledge that the, that the state is taking action and it takes it seriously and that it makes them illegal, even if as an enforcement mechanism, it's actually quite hard to, hard to implement. The question of how you deal with social media companies, that um, uh, I guess my answer would be very, very carefully. <laughs> Listen, I would just, just say in the Canadian context, um, we have uh, in our criminal code and our anti-terrorism legislation uh, an incitement uh, clause but it's it's linked uncomfortably, I think, and this was part of a, a debate that's been ongoing as we've reflected on changes to anti-terrorism legislation. This incitement offense is currently linked to something that's called in the criminal code terrorism offenses in general. And, and I, I'm sure all our panelists can imagine that that opens up a, a uh, you know, a bag of worms and may not be helpful uh, to achieving the kind of end that Patty's talking about in terms of it, you know, however well the law works, however well regulation works, if at the end of the day, it leaves a perception among the minority populations in particular, that they're not being properly looked after or protected by the space, by, by the state. You know, the kind of uh, legislative maneuvering that we've done in Canada on this, you know, may not achieve that, that symbolic outcome quite apart from how it's enforced. So I just wonder if Zach or Jeff might have any, any views on that, really linking Patty's comment to, you know, about the importance of, of providing minority communities with a sense that they're being protected, how that might relate to speech offence legislation and regulation. So um, I think it's, it's what, what Patty was, was talking about, about how um, linking sort of a uh, speech offence regulation and say hate crimes and things like that. Um, it brings up an important point about um, how we should define terrorism and in particular whether we should be more granular with our, um, with our pieces of legislation. Um, in, in many countries, for example, um, there's a single definition of terrorism in the law. It's normally something along the lines of uh, causing violence against persons or property with the intention to cause fear. Um, conducted by non-state actors and various other conditions. Okay. Um, and this gives rise to a host of different powers and permissions on, on the part of states. Um, so you, you might think that um, regulating certain speech acts regulated to terrorism would, would depend on that definition. Um, I worry, however, using a single definition of terrorism um, for all these different sorts of powers that are in place, uh, however, since it seems to me that we might do better to try to pick out individual features that are often associated with terrorism um, and try to try to link specific powers and permissions to those. And indeed, we might, as Patty was maybe suggesting, um, distinguish between, say, terrorism that um, is aimed against minority communities or incitement of terrorism that's aimed against minority communities and broader forms of terrorism, which is less specific in its, its targets. So I wonder if anyone else has some some views on that. I mean, I'm very sympathetic to that, Zach, I must admit. Uh, when I teach this class on the ethics of counterterrorism, we always start with a, a kind of conceptual analysis day where we think through, well, what is this thing called terrorism in the first place? Um, and predictably, the students disagree with each other about how to define terrorism. And so then they go and read a bunch of philosophers to try to sort it out, but the philosophers don't help because all the philosophers disagree about how to define terrorism. Um, and I often have the sense in doing conceptual analysis that actually what's important is to Pick, point out particular morally significant properties of actions that, and they should command our concern rather than a, a general concept of, of terrorism. Um, but it, it sounds like Patty's in favor of increased 
uh, penalties for particular terrorist offenses. Um, and it seems like that kind of a position would, would need the law to have a, a working definition of, of terrorism. So, so I'd be interested what, what Patty has to say about, about whether she thinks the, the state should have a, a view about what terrorism is that's active in its legislation, or whether we should go for this more um, retail approach where we think about individual kinds of actions one by one. Okay, okay. So I'm happy to answer that question, but but I'm gonna I am gonna answer it, and then I'm just, Zach, I'm throwing it back to you because I would like to know which are the features that you think need to be picked out in order in and focused on. So I mean, look, the, the book that I uh, the book that I wrote is it has a very particular audience, right? It's supposed to be senior undergraduates or early graduate students who are grappling with the questions of terrorism for the first time, and it's trying to sort of lay it out there how we should think about it. Because exactly as you say, Jeff, you bring students into a classroom and you say, what is terrorism? And then they all just yell at each other um, and, and they, they yell at each other. And then you gotta, you, gotta, you gotta turn around people because people still, I, I find at least here in Canada, maybe this is not true where you guys are teaching, but at least in Canada, people still, still operate with an image um, of terrorists as young Middle Eastern men. And they come in with that. And then there's, there's a few. So you, you have usually a minority citizen who says, actually, that's not what terrorism looks like. Uh, actually, it's perpetrated against minorities. But usually, it's a particular view that is bringing it in. And then you say, okay, well, you know, what are the general features of this action? How can we sort of generalize to capture all of the different types of things that we're concerned about? And so in the book, I just sort of throw out um, a pretty standard sort of political theoretic conception. And the, and the three views are that, that, a, that a, a terrorist action or a terrorist organization, uh, a terrorist action has a political objective. So this includes, it can include a wide range of actions, including, um, you know, revolutionizing the state or trying to change foreign policy or uh, trying to change a particular t policy in a particular state. Um, there are terrorist actions also. So in addition to having a, a, a recognizably political objective, they, um, they work by engaging in actions that intend to produce fear and anxiety. So that's the goal. And the way in which they do that, this is, you know, feature number three, is by perpetrating violence against innocent people. I mean, there's always questions about who's innocent. This is always the question that people bring up with respect to the IRA in Northern Ireland. The IRA had a very wide view of who was complicit in violence um, in Northern Ireland and so felt comfortable to attack uh, people who other uh, regular citizens who they just um, assumed were apparatus, you know, members of the British state, et cetera. But third, by, but incredibly threatening to produce more violence, right? So it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a group with a political objective which perpetrates violence with the purpose of generating fear and the credible claim that it could do so again in the future, right? So that was what was scary about 9-11. That's what's scary about this possible, you know, the possibility that, that you know, ISIS is just creating lone wolves or small actors and encouraging them because it's, it, it appears to be the case that they, 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 they can credibly create fear into the future, right? So that's the sort of the undermining effect. Okay, so fine. So then we can have a conversation about, you know, whose actions, fit this definition or whatever. That's, I mean, you know, uh, you know, the job of political theorists is to try to construct analytic care, uh, categories which allow for a fruitful conversation. I think that, you know, that those categories, which are, you know, sort of a, a, a standard political theoretic view, I think allow for that. So I'm pretty interested, okay, so now here's, here's where I throw it over to you, Zach. Uh, I'm pretty interested in, in sort of an alternative view that tries to pick out features of particular acts that would warrant uh, more attention or, or how we might go about that. So, um, well, so to, take the, yeah, to pick up the example of um, uh, sentencing enhancements for terrorists. Um, so, you know, in principle, I'm, I'm kind of um, sympathetic to uh, 
hate crimes being punished more severely than similar sorts of crimes. So a hate crime of murder being punished more severely than just a murder conducted for other reasons. And uh, the reason it seems is, is because um, hate crimes don't merely harm the person who is the, the immediate victim of them. They harm a wider group um, by, by creating fear, by creating an implication of inferior status or something like that. Now you might think that um, terrorism also has a sort of secondary victim other than those killed or those harmed or those who have their property destroyed or, some, or whatever, whatever the act is. And that's a, a wider population who is targeted. Um, and their target, the harm that occurs to them is, is one of, of fear. They fear credible threat of, of future harm. And so in principle, I, I think, um, and you do talk about this in your book, Patty, I, I'm open to a similar sort of argument going through uh, in, in case of terrorism, uh, given as a secondary victim here. However, I do wonder, maybe this is because I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know how, how this would you know, go about in the court, how we would uh, adequately understand victims' intentions. If the, if the key thing is that um, you know, people should be uh, given the harsher sentences because they intend to cause fear in a wider population, well, how easy, easy is it really gonna be to show that? And perhaps terrorists actually, um, perhaps more so than perpetrators of hate crime, have all sorts of, strain, uh, all sorts of interacting motivations going on. They might, they might want to cause fear in a wider population, sure, but they might just want to uh, you know, engage in uh, some sort of perceived holy war against a particular population or something like that, or they may just want to go out and get revenge. So in principle, it seems that fear could be, could be the, the starting point for that, but I'm not sure how that would play out in practice. Can I just come in here for, for a second and say that um, in, in a Canadian context, um, as we put together our first anti-terrorism legislation, we did add in uh, one of the features that, that Patty uh, stresses as a key component of, of our understanding of terrorism, which is that, that a terrorism offense uh, has to be based on a political, religious, or ideological motivation. And, and that was done uh, by, by liberal politicians uh, with the intent that it would have a kind of limiting impact on, on how we enforced terrorism sanctions against terrorism crimes, so that, that terrorism couldn't be used as a, as a kind of all-purpose um, instrument of repression by the state. I think that was very clear. One of, the, one of the kind of paradoxical impacts of that in Canada, I'd be interested in, in other people's thinking experience on this, is that um, because uh, if you take a case, case to court, um, it, it will be in our terrorism legislation, important to be able to prove that a person had a political, religious, or ideological motivation. Very often the authorities, and this is, this is true not just for, for kind of conventional terrorism offenses uh, of the sort that we've grown used to since 9-11, but increasingly with regard to, to right-wing forms of terrorism, the authorities are reluctant to bring terrorism charges against individuals who are clearly engaged in terrorism. And this seems to me, a, you know, a terrible paradox, but I'd be curious about everybody's thinking about, is there any way around that, that paradox? You want to kind of have clear-cut uh, definitional standards around how you under, understand terrorism, but you also want to be able to enforce terrorism sanctions against new forms of terrorism as they appear. 
I mean, certainly one way to resolve this is to just make sure it's a, a live issue that the legislature is continually revisiting. Um, it is, I think, a case, a, a problem with all legislation that you want it sufficiently specific uh, so that it's not likely to be abused. It's not likely to prescribe conduct that the legislature isn't intending to prescribe. Um, but you also want some kind of, of flexibility. Um, I think uh, one of the problems in this case, though, isn't the result of um, legislation being unduly uh, narrowly circumscribed when it was authored, although that might be the problem in Canada, but disproportionate or selective enforcement of legislation such that minority communities find themselves burdened by it. So, and this really speaks, I think, to a, to a core theme of, of Patty's book that um, this is certainly the case in Britain, it's certainly the case in the United States. Um, Muslim citizens do feel singled out by this legislation um, uh, in a way that other uh, people who seem to be supportive of terrorism or at least sympathetic to terrorist causes or who indeed engage in acts that we would intuitively describe as terroristic um, are not. And that has these really unfortunate effects in undermining the kind of egalitarian civic culture of, of the society. And so it's really an argument for the various um, relevant prosecution services to get their act together and ensuring that they're um, uh, enforcing legislation in an even-handed way across the broader society. Without that, you're not going to get the kind of the kind of trust that you need both to achieve social and civic equality, but also to get the kind of cooperation with various communities that you need to, to do counterterrorism policy well. Right, excellent point. And this might be a, a, a good time to pivot to another theme, which is very closely related, and, it, and it's difficult and complex. And this is racial profiling and counterterrorism policies. Uh, and, it, and something certainly Patty and I discussed as she was drafting her book. I'm sure that, that everyone uh, on this um, uh, Zoom event will have views about, including in the audience. But maybe I could start with Patty and, and just tell us what you see as the essence of this problem of racial profiling. Um, so I really want to answer that question, and I will. But first, I'm going to respond to Zach, uh, which, which um, is uh, something that's harder to stop me from doing in Zoom. So okay, so so I so I think that I think that you you, you constructed this this question really nicely. I didn't I didn't use the language in my book of uh, um, of a se secondary victim. So I think that's really helpful to see that see that both in the co the case of hate crimes and in the case of possible enhanced punishments that we should be focused on. Um, that, 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 that there may also be a secondary victim in both those cases and that the, the, the fact of a secondary victim may justify uh, enhanced penalties in both those cases. I think that is the argument that I was running, although I like the language of secondary victim uh, better than the language that I chose. Um, so, so the reason that I wanted to talk about that in particular, I mean, I had two separate reasons why I wanted to talk about it. One is because uh, the, 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 the question of enhanced punishments very successfully, I think, signals to relevant communities that this crime is being taken particularly seriously. Because in most of the cases of enhanced punishments, um, it actually doesn't result in any enhanced punishments because usually the crime that's been committed is so grievous that it's already the maximum punish has already um, has already been reached, right? So you have this. I mean, that's what happened in New Zealand with the mosque shooter, the Australian mosque shooter. They they got the maximum sentence for the crime itself. There was no, I mean, they, 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 there were terrorist crimes associated with it, but they, but no additional penalties were given as a result of that. And similarly for, uh, it looks like uh, for Robert Bowers, like these, these people where the, the effect, even once the punishment is, is selected is not actually to change the punishment. It's, it's, a, it's largely symbolic. And I think that's um, tremendously important, but there's a second reason why I wanted to consider it, which is um, that it is, that it is, 
uh, I juxtaposed it against a harsher punishment, which is expulsion from the community to begin with. And there has been a lot of discussion, in particular in the case of um, violent religious extremism, about whether it's justified and when it's justified to revoke citizenship or deny the rights of individuals to return to political communities. And this is a case. This is uh, partly the case of Shamima Begum in the in the UK, but this is going on, um, and it, it, this is going on across democratic countries, which are making the choice to. Uh, revoke citizenship of foreign fighters before they return or to punish people who have returned with expulsion and then deport them um, to various types of um, countries which may or may not be successfully able to protect their human rights. And I wanted to say in that context that it's actually that one of the ways in which we evaluate democratic states is with respect to how fairly they treat even the worst guys for their largely guys, although increasingly women as well, but the worst citizens in our community, that's how we judge a democratic state. And I think this point is sometimes lost in conversations about, um, in, in conversations about terrorism uh, and, and, and in particular in punishing terrorism, that, which is separate from the question of how we prevent it in the first place. That's the question of how we deal with social media companies, but the question of how we punish it is a lot, has a lot to do. I mean, once, once you're apprehended by the state, uh, you know, the, the, the power of the state is massive against you. You have nearly no power and any power or rights that you can exercise are at the discretion of the state, whether they give you a lawyer, whether they allow you an open trial, whether they give you an opportunity to speak at that trial, all of that is at the discretion of the state. And so to me, when you're evaluating how democratic, how egalitarian is your democracy or how demo democratic is your democracy, the way that you can best evaluate it is by looking at it, how it treats the worst people, the people who are believed to be the worst in your society. And so that's why on the one hand, I wanted to say, it's, it's not okay to just say about these people who are the worst, who we believe to be the worst, that we can kick them out. They're out, they're out, 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 out. Um, you know, following the model of a, you know, Athenian, um, Athenian uh, ostracism, right? We don't want to go that route. That's not okay. So we need to think through what, what, what alternative options, right? Because people, I mean, this is like, there's all, you can say all kinds of things that you want. People are really scared about terrorism. People are super scared. And there's a good reason that people are scared about it, even though very few of us are actually ever affected by it. And give, especially even though there's very few terrorist incidents in any of our countries. And those that there are, are tend not to be all that deadly compared to what's going on in the rest of the world. So why are people exercised about it? It's still a bit scary, so we need to take it seriously. And any sort of proposal that doesn't take it seriously um, is not going to get very much public traction. And also, uh, well, you know, it shouldn't because it doesn't take it seriously. On the other hand, I think the democracies are responsible for their bad guys. And so we need to take seriously that they have rights that which require protection. And I think it's extremely important that we keep them um, and, and protect their rights, even as we engage in various types of discussions about what are, are fair forms of punishment. So just that, that's just a, a really, that's a too long response to Zach on the question about why we should think seriously about having enhanced punishments, um, because we need to think seriously about what the ranges are. And so I wanted to say, this type of punishment is off the continuum, expulsion, whereas these types of enhanced punishments are in on the continuum, they're available to democratic states, not required, but available to democratic states. Okay, so that's part one. Um, so you presumably pod, any, anybody who's made it this far now wants to hear somebody else's voice. So let me just say uh, quickly about racial profiling. Um, I mean, this, you know, the reason to talk about racial profiling, I mean, political philosophers uh, were exercised about racial profiling more so I think than the, um, the security community is in general. That's, that's, that's been my feeling about sort of working at the intersection of these two spaces. And, Political theorists don't like it because it profiles people on the basis of morally arbitrary characteristics. For uh, listeners out there, that's a very, uh, very well-known um, sentence from John 
Rawls's early work in political theory, right? So you don't want to penalize people for characteristics over which they have no control. And racial profiling looks like it does that. It says, here's something that doesn't matter, your race. And it says that your race is relevant to the question of whether or not you would commit terrorism. Now, in the book, I go through a lot of different ways to look at the numbers, because one thing that people always say when you say, look, profiling on the basis of race just per perpetuates inequalities. It perpetuates stereotypes of per particular types of people as engaging in particular types of acts. And, uh, and then, and then you, you get sort of security, um, security types who say, but they do, right? Statistics show us that proportionally speaking, certain populations are more likely to engage in, in, um, in, in, um, in various types of terrorist activities. I was once, if you'll permit me an anecdote since I've got the floor such as it is, uh, Wesley, um, uh, um, uh, well, well, how should I say this? There's an organization in Canada, in Canada which, 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 is, is, which is focuses on the study of um, terrorism. Uh, and I was invited to give a talk about my work to that organization. And I went, I was very happy to do it. And I said, look, there's a lot of different considerations that you need to make when you're, when you're adopting counterterrorism policies. But one is, could you justify a particular policy to every citizen in the population? Could you look at people who are gonna be, who are gonna bear the costs of the policy, take no fly lists, take passport cancellations, the people who are going to have to deal with it, most likely, not people named Patty Lennard or Jeff Howard or Isaac Taylor, uh, maybe Wesley Work, I'm not sure, uh, right? But can you, take, can, you, can you justify the people to the people who are gonna be affected by this policy that they're gonna be affected by it, that it's gonna be for the greater good? Could you actually justify it? And the first question I got to my talk which I thought this is, this is extremely powerful. It's like, it's, it's, it's second year political theory, right? It's, um, you know, is the, is the can, you, can you justify it to everybody else in the community and rule? And, and somebody stood up, um, you know, and said very loudly uh, in, uh, you know, in a very non-Canadian way, if you don't mind my saying, said, this is the worst talk on national security <laughs> I've ever heard. And I was like, I was like okay, listen, Take it down a notch. I'm not giving a talk on national security. I don't know anything about national security. That's not my job. My job is to think about how you justify policies to the people who are impacted by it, right? You have to think about that. And there was a lot of uh, resistance to this idea. All right. So that's the thing about racial profiling is that people think that because the set of people who are in the newspaper or the set of people who actually do sometimes commit terrorist acts, sometimes seem to be disproportionately from groups, justifies racial profiling. And in the book, I, I mean, I can go through numbers here, but that's boring for a Zoom thing. Um, so in the book, I say, look, the, the numbers just don't justify this, right? I, even if you had numbers that justified racial profiling as a mechanism for identifying who's going to bear the costs of counterterrorism policies, you would have reasons not to do it because they, they've undermined the trust that we need in a democratic state, but the numbers don't even justify it. So actually, for all the evidentiary reasons that we have for adopting particular policies and targeting them correctly, uh, we don't have any good reasons to engage in racial profiling in these kinds of cases. Patty, lovely. I'm gonna to turn to, to Zach and, and Jeff for, for any comments on, on the racial profiling issue. <laughs> I don't have too many, too many points of disagreement there. Um, I mean, I, I suppose, um, if, if we were assuming that maybe in some cases the numbers do justify it, you could say, that, well, you know, one way of justifying it to every citizen would be to say that uh, it's not just it's for the greater good, it actually might you know, benefit each individual person. 
yeah, there's an increased risk of them being pulled over at an airport or something, but you know, they, they would benefit from, from um, increased security. Um, and uh, one interesting defense of, um, very rare defense you find in political philosophy of racial profiling in a paper by um, Matthias Riese and Richard Zeckhauser, uh, argues precisely this, that you know, maybe we could justify it to these communities who are profiled precisely because um, it, it might be the case that actually they're the ones who really need the increased security. Um, now, I don't know how that works out in the counter-terrorism case, but in, in cases more general of policing, um, as, many, as many authors have pointed out, uh, if you do get numbers that support racial profiling, if you do, you do get numbers that suggest that uh, you know, certain groups are more likely to commit more crimes than other groups, statistically speaking, that's probably going to be a result of informal racial profiling in the past. You know, where are police looking already and where they look they're likely to find crimes. So um, I just underline what Paddy said, that we do need to be, um, you know, looking at the empirical side of this thing and being very sceptical of it, in my view. Jeff? I agree with that. Um, this, the topic of racial profiling is, is um, such a useful topic for illuminating people's background, moral perspective. So when I teach the week on racial profiling, um, inevitably students doing our master's degree in security studies show up and what they're most interested in is, is it effective? Does it actually contribute to the achievement of security. And then some of our students uh, doing the masters in human rights come in and they say, no, 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 it's irrelevant. We don't care whether it's effective or not because we know that it's wrong independent of its consequences. And this is a very useful way of illuminating the, the consequentialist approach to thinking about morality and public policy and the, the non-consequentialist or what's sometimes called the deontological approach uh, on the other side. Uh, where even if a policy has good consequences, that doesn't necessarily therefore mean it's justified because it might violate the rights that individuals have. Um, one thing to just add on the racial profiling question that I think is so interesting, um, uh, and this is an argument that uh, is uh, suggested by a philosopher named Casper Lieber Rasmussen, um, there are some contexts where it may be true that certain communities are more likely to engage in certain kinds of crime. But then we need to ask, why is it the case that certain communities are more likely to engage in crime? And if bad public policy is part of the story, if failed uh, uh, drugs policy and education policy, um, among many other uh, policy, policy failures, are responsible for creating contexts in which people um, face uh, what you might call criminogenic pressures to engage in crime in order to earn a basic economic living, um, you cannot create these communities that make it more likely to, for certain people to commit crime and then point to that fact as though it's just some kind of fact of nature and then use it as the rationale for imposing extra burdens on those communities. Now, that's in the domestic policy context of the United States that this argument is being made, but there's an interesting question about how it might arise in the counterterrorism context. Might it be that unjust foreign policy has contributed in some way to people deciding to becoming terrorists in the first place. Now that doesn't mean, of course, that uh, a state that engages in unjust foreign policy is responsible for the terrorism, but it does complicate the picture about whether racial profiling against a certain population uh, could be justified. I, I agree. I mean, and, and just, just, I mean, and the, the other complicating factor, I think in this, in this, in this uh, not at all hypothetical for you, Jeff situation where you bring in the you know the people who have a master's who want a master's in human rights and the people who want a master's in security to have a have a have a you know have a fight about whether the justification for racial profiling is that at least in my version of this students are often um, 
they're often operating in these two camps. In fact, I mean, I my, the program that I teach in is, is called conflict and human rights. So they're not security, but it's basically the same debate. And they operate with a different account of what security is. So you find that the people who come in with human rights who say, no, look, security is an, an individual human right. So we need, to be count we need to be assessing whether or not there's a, whether pe people's individual human right to security is protected. And then they say, and then they conclude from that, that the pursuit of counterterrorism policy is rights violating because it undermines the felt security of minority citizens or the citizens who bear the costs of counterterrorism policies. And then you get the conflict or the security people, students, and they say, no, 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 no. Security is something about a community, right? It tells us whether or not, what are the statistical likelihood that the community will face a major terrorist event. And so, so the question is whether or not is that is that that's the question D does our community face this terrorist event and can we reduce it the, the likelihood of this by uh by undermining or constraining the rights of certain individuals right and so they're so they're operating with a different measure and one of the things that i try to do in the book i mean i don't resolve this because uh you know well, what to say political philosophers often don't resolve anything and anyway my general strategy I'm, I'm very interested in taxonomy how can we just divide things up so that we can understand things better and then let people make choices from those taxonomies but the, in the book I just say look there's there's actually two different types of security in operation here and so when you have this conversation you need to be attentive to both dimensions and the result is often this is happens in the like in the last three pages of the book the result is that when you violate the individual security of, of, of minority citizens, they actually withdraw their cooperation from the general project of protecting community level security, right? So that so that it turns out that you can't separate these questions in any in, in any in any actual way, because if you undermine the security of individual residents, it actually turns out to impact the ability to protect the security for the entire community. That'd be good. Listen, I'm, I'm, I have the unenviable task of being the timekeeper here, and we need to, to finish in, in just a few minutes. So I, I hope that we can have a quick conversation about, because I think this does relate to what we've just been discussing in terms of um, the, the nature impact, thinking about racial profiling, a quick conversation about um, surveillance uh, techniques and impacts. And then maybe we can just end with a, with a quick sort of final wrap up uh, thought from from each of you, Patty, Zach, uh, Jeff, uh, really perhaps on the on the question of uh, what do you think we we need to keep thinking about in this area? So, but anyway, if anyone would like to weigh in, perhaps Jeff on on the surveillance question, um, you know, what are the key issues here? What are the challenges involved? So certainly, when I teach the topic of surveillance, um, again, it, it seems to admit of this. Uh, clash between the consequentialists who say, well, it's all about um, the outcomes. And if a particular regime of uh, what seems to infringe people's privacy produces good benefits, then let's go for it. Uh, and then people come in on the other side and say, well, hang on, it violates the right to privacy. Uh, and I, it was actually um, an article that, that Zach wrote that made its way um, into, the, into his book um, that actually got me thinking that even if you're a deontologist, even if you take seriously the idea that people have a right to privacy, um, there can be cases in which surveillance could be, could be justified. So that's my way of teeing it up for you, Zach. So maybe you could let us in on the, the summary yeah. version of your view. Thanks for that, yes. Um, so yes, I, I suppose um, I'm, I'm of a view that, uh, you know, we have privacy rights and those rights would normally tell against surveillance. Um, but just because we have rights doesn't mean that um, no actions that would otherwise violate those rights can, can, can always uh, are always impermissible. So one way in which we can, we can um, sometimes uh, waive our rights is through our consent, right? So if I'm, uh, I normally have a right against being hit 
but if I consent to a boxing match, then it seems like that right's no longer there. And um, most people in the, um, in the sort of uh, policy circles argue that, uh, well, you know, online surveillance especially, although it seems to, to go against privacy rights, uh, it, it seems we can say that people consent to those. You know, we, we give them a, a box to click saying, I consent for my data to be used in such and such a way. Number of problems with that view though. Uh, most obvious is that for consent to do the normative work asked of it, it has to be informed. And I'm not sure how many of us here actually read through all the, the privacy statements online. Um, I, I don't. Uh, and moreover, sometimes a degree of secrecy might be needed in a surveillance operation so as not to underline those operations itself. Um, so my view is sort of dominant way of thinking about uh, privacy here through saying, through consent and arguing that we can we can engage in surveillance if we acquire people's consent is problematic and we need to start thinking in, in other ways about whether surveillance could be justified. Abby? Yeah I mean in the book I talk about um, I'm actually interested in, in not in online surveillance not because I'm not interested in it but because the, the, the focus that I chose was on uh, community level surveillance and the way in which various types of communities level surveillance have an impact again on the same set of questions that motivated this work in the first place on trust relations, et cetera, in diverse communities. And the, I, I focused on the, 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 the duty to report that is um, in operation in the UK, which invites uh, various types of people in public spaces, but in particular educators to report if they believe that the, their students are you know, moving towards radicalism in various types of ways. Uh, and, the, and the reason, I mean, there's a, the, the, the program itself is complicated. The reasons for adopting it are complicated. Uh, and the policy space in the UK is far um, beyond my capacity to understand. But one of the things that emerged from that and from the data that came out of who was being referred was that overwhelmingly people are picking out people who are either uh, students who are Muslim or Muslim appearing and misinterpreting the kinds of things they're doing. So there was a lot of, I mean, there was, a, you know, the newspapers made a, made a, made a big joke of a, of a kid who drew a cucumber and the teacher misunderstood that as a cooker bomb and then referred the entire family for, you know, investigation on the grounds of whether or not they were, you know, radical, radicalizing their children. Um, so, you know, that's a silly example, but less silly examples are students of Middle Eastern origin who are interested in questions of security and so study that at university and then get referred for reading books, taking books out of the library on terrorism as though that were an indicator that they were radicalizing. And then there are all the different ways in which, in which um, uh, there's the research shows that people with Middle Eastern origin, Muslim students are um, uh, are affected by the chilling effect. Sociologists typically call it the chilling effect, but they're, 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 they're trying to present themselves in ways so that they don't get referred for um, additional surveillance, et cetera. And what, what all of the data shows, I mean, in the end, the, the PREVENT program doesn't seem to penalize Muslim appearing, Muslim or Muslim appearing students. But what it does do is show us that there are stereotypes operating in the community, which, which, which have, um, which shape how such citizens are viewed. And that's in, 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 the, in the book, that's the sort of the problem that I identify, which is that the way this program has been rolled out is that it allows individual British citizens to operate on their stereotypes, which themselves have been created by the media, the media portrayal of Muslim and Muslim appearing individuals. So that's the sort of the objection that I have. But I think that to the extent that we allow for surveillance, it can't be a way that triggers people to focus on their stereotypes and then target individuals based on the, the pre-existing stereotypes that they have, which are incorrect. Um, 
Abby, thank you. That's probably a, a good message for security and intelligence agencies too. And if we had more time, I think that would be an interesting avenue to explore. But as, as a finale, I'm just going to ask each of you for, for one quick thought. This is unfair, uh, certainly for philosophers. <laughs> one quick thought on, on what you would want us all to continue to think about puzzle over as we you know, uh, confront this ongoing question of how to deal with terrorism in a democratic, properly democratic setting. So maybe I could start with Jeff and then uh, Zach and then finally Patty. So certainly from my own personal perspective, I'm gonna be continuing to think about the role of, of new technologies and particularly the obligations of social media companies, both in terms of their own internal uh, policies, both respect to free speech and privacy, but also the, the right regulations. Um, but generalizing a bit, there was a wonderful column in The Atlantic recently by Ben Rhodes, President Obama's foreign policy speechwriter, and the title of the column was The 9-11 Era Was Over. And it seemed to suggest that um, terrorism and counterterrorism in this new COVID era might increasingly be on the political back burner. Uh, and on the one hand, um, so, so while there are lots of interesting philosophical and academic questions to keep asking and thinking through about terrorism, it is interesting that terrorism is receding from the public discourse in some way. Uh, and in some ways, I think that's probably a good thing because it will mean that the kind of frenzied um, fixation on this issue that we've seen since 9-11 will dial down a bit. Um, but I think there's also a risk that comes with that, namely that we're not going to be uh, subjecting these kinds of policies to the kind of public scrutiny that they that they deserve. Um, and so that's definitely something I'm going to be I'm going to keep thinking about. Uh, yes. So I, I think Jeff is right. Uh, we need to continue public scrutiny on this. Um, one thing for me that's come out of, of this conversation, I think, has been the need for continued interdisciplinary work in, in this area. Um, you know, you can ask all sorts of moral questions about different counter-terrorist policies, but uh, one of the most important ones is simply, does it work? Given that most forms of counter-terrorism will, will come with costs, will come with setbacks to the interests of some people, we need to be really sure that they are necessary. And that, I think, is something that philosophers can't do, but maybe more empirically-minded social scientists can. Okay, thanks. Patty? Yeah, I, I mean, for me, the, the sort of the future direction um, well, first, actually, I agree. I agree that the 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 the, uh, that the 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 fact that we're concerned about the um, you know a pandemic is is both an opportunity, a risk, and an opportunity, just like Jeff described it. So that, so that some things can move outside of the public space, and we can focus on them. And in that space, the the thing that I'm most interested in is the the various types of strategies that um, reintegration of foreign fighters, in particular, have taken. Um, and there's some there's some models out there to look at, but the the general should sort of strategies that they're taking to reintegrate individuals and the ways in which they take seriously the, you know, the, the public policy questions that again, Jeff referred to earlier about, you know, we, it, what, are, what are the ways in which, you know, bad public policy in the past has led to racial profiling, apparently successful, you know, apparently effective racial profiling in the present. I'll also raise the question about, you know, not knowing what are, what are the triggers, what, what is it that triggers people to go fight from abroad, fight abroad in wars that are not, um, well, that are abroad. How can we how can we best reintegrate them uh, into a political community as uh, as equal members, um, and how can we create communities that are welcoming to people who want to uh, you know such as it is reintegrate? That'd be great. Listen, uh, just one one final thought, which is that that uh, referring back to to some of the origins of, of Patty's work on this, I I can remember how delighted I was by the idea that a political philosopher might take an interest in in counterterrorism policy in the Canadian context in particular, where, where our debate tends to be 
less than fulsome and uh, often less than thoughtful. So uh, it, it's been a long road, but I'm, I'm delighted to see that Patty has, has stayed with this subject, found, found it fruitful, has, has intersected with colleagues who clearly also, uh, like Zach and, and Jeff, are deeply engaged in this. And it's, it's something we're going to have to continue to think about, whether or not terrorism remains a kind of number one national security threat, the kinds of policies that we've adopted in, in its face uh, have all kinds of, uh, of spillover effects for other security policies to come, even with regard to how we deal with uh, COVID and, and future pandemics. So I, I just want to thank everybody on the panel for joining in. I think this has been a terrific conversation. Thanks to Patty, thanks to Zach, thanks to Jeff. Great to have you here from, from multiple places in the globe. Thanks to our audience. And I, I hope we can continue this conversation. In the meantime, read Patty's book, How Should Democracies Fight Terror?